The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast paced. It's like a good two minute drill. We are just boom, 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 right down the field. Opinionated. If they take the David Price savings and the Mookie Betts savings and pocket the money, it will have been a lie and the fan base will be furious. To the point. Cam is not that guy. He's not the kind of athlete that works in today's NFL for the most part. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome in once again, everybody. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Reminder, you can subscribe to the Brady Farkas Show podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. And the reason why I keep telling you that is a couple of reasons, right? The, the show goes onto the podcast feed right after it's done, you know, within 10 minutes. And and that's great. I love when people listen to the show live. I love when people listen on demand at their convenience. But also, I'm trying hard, and our staff is trying hard, to put other cool things on that podcast feed that aren't necessarily a huge part of the show or aren't in the show on the show in full. So, like, for instance, this week starting today, we are posting an interview a day for the rest of the week, so the next three days, about the local college hockey scene. So Reed Cashman, the new Dartmouth College head coach, he sat down with me, a 12-minute interview. We did it on video, put some of the highlights on social media already earlier today. The full interview is on that Brady Farkas Show podcast feed. You're not going to get that anywhere else. You have to subscribe to the podcast to get it. So we're trying to do some extras like that. We'll play some of the interview later today in the uh, Who's Saying What segment towards the end of the show. But the full interview there is is on the podcast feed. Also, Todd Woodcroft, UVM hockey coach in his first year, he's going to be on it tomorrow. And then Friday, Cam Ellsworth, the Norwich men's hockey coach, he's going to be on it. So if you're interested in local sports, interested in local college sports and local hockey, then the the podcast feed is a good spot for you. If you want to interact with the show directly, you can reach out to me on Twitter, at WDEV Radio Brady. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio stops by at 545. Love talking to Freddie, and the show is sponsored by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of lifetime oil changes and state inspections. Preston's Kia, family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. All right, let's start here. I've had 24 hours to digest my interview with Jeff Shulman from yesterday, UVM Athletic Director. And, and I want to praise Jeff Shulman for coming on for his transparency about the situation at UVM where UVM Athletics is delaying the start of winter sports competition until December 18th. I thank him for coming on. I thank him for his transparency. Now what does it all mean? I really worry if we'll see winter sports at all at UVM now. They're scheduled to begin on December 18th after hearing Jeff yesterday and digesting it now for 24 hours. I worry that we may not see UVM athletics at all. First off, not only does the situation in Vermont have to get better, okay, the situation in Vermont as far as coronavirus has to get better, but you're also entrusting an entire region to get better. Okay, Vermont's got to get better, and that's first and foremost the concern for Jeff Shulman, for Governor Phil Scott, for Health Commissioner Dr. Mark Levine. That's the first concern. But in terms of where UVM would go to play and where teams would come from to play UVM, you're banking on an entire region with multiple states all having to get better and safe to go to and from, and I really, really worry about that. If it's not good enough now to play, 
I don't know that it's going to be good enough in a month for them to start. Not only just here, but also you got to get Connecticut good. You've got to get Maine good, New Hampshire good, Massachusetts good, New York good, New Jersey good. That seems like a tough ask. And it's we're already seeing this, okay? University of Maine, they announced their men's hockey team's not going to play this weekend against UMass. So it's already not good enough to play for one of those two programs. Maybe UVM was just at the beginning here of a slew of cancellations and, and opt-out seasons that are going to happen. Maybe they were. But based on what Jeff Shulman told me, I'm doubting, I'm worrying rather, that we're not going to see UVM athletics at all. Here was Jeff Shulman talking to me yesterday um, about the situation. Any, any of our competition involves interstate travel. Either we're traveling out of state to compete against somebody or they're traveling um, from another state to compete against us. <clears throat> the virus is far worse in, in other states than it, than it is in Vermont. So um, that's certainly a concern right now. But again, the, the message that has been coming out has been very firm about um, interstate travel and, uh, and that that only should be should be occurring under the most essential of, of circumstances. So he says that basically UVM athletics is not the most um, essential of circumstances. So you need two things to happen now. In order for UVM to play, you apparently need two things to happen. You need the situation to get better in Vermont. Michael Pichax, the Department of Financial Regulation Commissioner, he leads you to believe that that's not going to happen right away. The cases are projected to continue to rise. Uh, on average, even getting as high as averaging 100 a day. Uh, right now, our average is below that. Uh, but we anticipate um, that we will start to see cases slow down and start to decrease because of the intervention measures that were put into place on Friday. So, so over the next six weeks, he's saying that cases are going to get greater. They're anticipating 100 cases a day, potentially. So there's no guarantee the situation gets better in Vermont. But even if it does... Do you trust that it's going to get better in all of the places around Vermont? That's a big ask. And you know what? If UVM does pull out of the season, and if, if everybody else in their leagues play and UVM doesn't, you know what? That's okay. I, I will not be mad at them for promoting the idea of public safety and, and student-athlete safety and community safety. I will not get mad at them for that. But I do, as I read the tea leaves, have a hard time believing that if they're not going to play now and the forecasters are telling you that things are going to get worse not only just here but regionally I have a hard time believing that they're ever going to play this winter I have a real worry that they're not going to play this winter because and you know what they're almost headed for a complete no-win situation aren't they think about what could happen here there's really three possible outcomes one is that everything gets better everywhere and they play that's the, that's the desired outcome. But there's two other outcomes which are negative. One is that things don't get better and the season gets bagged for either them or for their league as a whole. And the other one is that the league goes on and they, they, re, they come back and play. Things are worse, but they still come back and play. And if the, the landscape doesn't get any better, but UVM goes back and plays, you're going to wonder... Okay, well, why did they sit out a month? If the situation doesn't get better and they go back and play, then what was it all for? That's what people will wonder. That's what I will wonder. Three possible outcomes. Only one of them is good. I feel like UVM is headed for an almost no-win situation. Either they're not going to play at all, 
which would be tragic on a lot of levels, or they're going to go back and play in an environment that's the same or worse than the one that they were trying to protect everyone from now. And again, if they bag the season in the name of public safety, I'm not going to crush them for that. I'm not even going to be mad at them for that. I'll be disappointed, but I'll get it. I'm not going to judge them negatively for that. If they're trying to be proactive members of the community and set a good example for the community, I'm not going to be upset by that. I'll be disappointed that there's no sports. I love sports. I love being a fan of sports. I love cheering on a local team. I remember what it was like to be a college student athlete. I'll feel bad for the guys that don't get their season this year, but I'm not going to crush them if they bag their season in the name of public safety. But if they go back, if they play in an environment that's just as tenuous as the one they're they're in right now, it's going to look bad. And then if they bag the season, then that's a no win. I mean, that's a, that's not a, a good outcome for anybody if they bag the season. I mean. I do have to say this, though. I asked the question, I said specifically to Jeff Shulman, the governor has says you're allowed to play. Why are you not? And he started his answer like this. No, you, you, you're you absolutely right about that, Brady. Nope, the governor didn't come to us and Commissioner Levine didn't come to us and said you cannot uh, continue on. Um, I want to stop there. I believe them. I do believe that there are states where local government is pressuring schools to do things one way or the other. I saw today the Oregon governor told, told Portland State that they can't play. I do believe that Governor Phil Scott and that Health Commissioner Dr. Mark Levine, I don't believe they had anything to do with this. I truly think this is UVM trying to be proactive. I think they see themselves as <clears throat> the, marquee, the marquee thing in the state, the biggest college, the only Division One athletic program in a state where there's really where there's no professional sports, you know, of a high level. Sorry to the Lake Monsters, but they see themselves in that huge light, and they should. So I think they are trying to do something proactive, and I don't believe this came from the governor. I don't believe that this came from the governor's office. I do not believe that they were forced to do this by anybody in local government. Jeff Shulman was made that pretty clear to me. I believe that. I just also believe that we're headed for a situation where they really may not play at all. And that will make me sad, but I will understand it. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. That point, though, does lead me to my midweek questions. Midweek questions. All right, my midweek questions is this, though. I don't believe that UVM was pressured to do this from the outside. I don't believe that the governor or Mark Levine did said this to them. But I do wonder if people on campus applied pressure to UVM. And what I mean by that, did the academic types at UVM force this issue? And the reason why I ask this is because Jack Fitzsimmons, sports uh, anchor at WCAX, he put a tweet out the other day. There was an email from a UVM professor sent to WCAX on Sunday afternoon citing the exceptions to the to the Vermont Department of Health travel policy and the school's ban on visitors. The hockey games and basketball games would have required is putting campus health in jeopardy. So Jack Fitzsimmons is telling you, we got an email at WCAX where people on campus, professors on campus, were not happy that basically the athletes were able to get around all other campus and state protocols. I hope that this isn't true. I hope that the, the academic types at UVM did not put pressure on the administration to force this cancellation on athletics. 
I understand it's inconvenient that professors can't live their lives and that I can't live my life and you can't live your life. But these student-athletes are among the safest and most tested people on campus, and the UVM opponents are as well. You're depriving student-athletes a chance to live their dreams, to grow, to continue to be taught life lessons when you do this. And for what? Because the governor said 71% of all cases since October 1st are coming from small in-person gatherings. They're not coming from schools. They're not coming from gyms. They're not coming from restaurants. They're not coming from places with protocol. So why did the academic types at UVM potentially fill the need to go out and try to shut down the college's athletics because they don't value athletics, because they don't understand the value of athletics. There's always a pocket of a campus community that resents student athletes or resents athletics because they think that athletes are favored. And in some cases, you know what, in some cases they are. But we do need to recognize how valuable and how enriching athletics is to a community. I mean, athletics in most cases is the most important and the most recognizable portion of a university. Have you heard of Weber State without Damian Lillard? I haven't. Can you tell me anything about Florida State? You can tell me about Bobby Bowden, though, their legendary head coach. Okay, And outside of the Ivy League, I've never really thought to learn the name of a physics professor or of a professor of political science. But I can tell you who the quarterback is, and a lot of other people can too. And I'm sorry that people that, that some people don't like that. But athletics is important. It's important to the student experience. It's important to the student-athletes who play. It's important to the revenue for universities. And it's important to campus life and, therefore, campus pride and future enrollment, which brings in future dollars to help pay those professors who are upset salaries. If UVM is pulled back because it feels like it's it needs to be a role model, that is fine. But what is not fine is... UVM athletics or UVM the university being pushed around by a small group of professors who just don't see the real value in athletics. I hope that that's not true. It's inconvenient for everybody what we're going through. Athletics, though, is a huge part of a university. And I hope that these professors who allegedly sent this email to WCAX, I hope they recognize that because it's a hugely important part of the college experience and of campus life. And you know what? Kids are going to travel home for Thanksgiving. Kids are going to come back to Vermont from other schools and other states for Thanksgiving. Other communities are going to be impacted by just, quote, normal kids traveling. Kids are going to break quarantine rules. They're going to cross state lines. They're going to go visit girlfriends and go visit boyfriends. And they're going to throw Halloween parties. And we don't want them to do any of that, but they're going to because they're college kids. That is what they do. They think, you know, we all thought that we were um, – above reproach when we were 19 or 21. That's what college kids do. The student-athletes here are not the problem. The greater campus population is also putting the greater campus population at risk. Athletics is not the main reason. Again, if UVM wants to pull out of a season or delay a season by a month in the name of public safety, that's fine. That's admirable in a lot of ways. What's not admirable is a group of professors – trying to strong arm the university because they think that athletics gets an unnecessary break. That is where I draw the line. It's the Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com. So the situation in Vermont right now, we're on edge a little bit about the future of UVM. 
They'd have to go and play Hartford in Connecticut. What's the landscape look like there? Freddie Coleman of ESPN. He's in Connecticut. He tells me that's next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. One of the nicest guys in sports talk radio and one of the smartest. We thought the Patriots, that they're very good at keeping information from getting out. They're better than the FBI and the CIA. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN's Freddie Coleman on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back to the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Every single Wednesday at this time, we bring on our guy, Freddie Coleman, ESPN radio host. You can hear him tonight on this station beginning at 9 p.m. You can hear him every weeknight beginning at 9 p.m. Freddie, how are you? Hopefully staying warm like you guys are. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, 20 degrees and snowing today was uh, was what I woke up to. It feels like Christmas decided to not wait until after Thanksgiving to give us a little Christmas weather, huh? For sure. Hey, you know, we were just talking about this. We talked a lot about it yesterday. So the University of Vermont, unprovoked, meaning they weren't pushed by the governor to do this or anything, they pushed back winter sports competition by a month. They were supposed to open up this weekend for men and women's hockey. They pushed competition back for hockey and basketball by a month. You're in Connecticut, which is a place that UVM has to go to a lot to play either UConn or Hartford. What's the tenor right now around college athletics in Connecticut as I kind of get a feel for the rest of the region? Uh, Pretty much the same thing because Sacred Heart did the same thing with hockey, and I wonder if they're going to do the same thing when it comes to basketball or other winter sports. And I think a lot of people paid attention, Brady, to what Rick Pitino, who's now at Iona as the head basketball coach, what he had to say in terms of why is May Madness not a bad idea? Because with the COVID-19 upsurge continuing to happen, happen everywhere, why not have things move just a little bit later? This way we can ensure better safety, still get a season, and we're still going to have an NCAA tournament. So I get the sense a lot of people, even if they won't say it out loud, Brady, may be paying closer attention to that, especially in states where you're going to have hockey teams and basketball teams and some of those teams play in the same arenas. The thing that makes me really worried about everything here locally is that you know, the state of Vermont could get everything under control, but you're putting a lot, awful lot of trust in an entire region, right? It's Connecticut, it's Massachusetts, it's Maine, and it's hard to monitor what's going on in all of those other states, even if your own is okay. Yeah, there's no doubt about that because it's not so much about the athletes and making sure they're going to be safe. It's who are they going to be around, whether it comes to their peers on campus, whether you're not, not on campus learning, you're an online or a hybrid model or when you go home for Thanksgiving or family members come to visit you don't know who they've been in contact with with somebody may be asymptomatic but that does mean that your body is going to react the same way so when you have something like this which is a hidden monster when it comes to COVID-19 no matter what kind of precautions that you're going to take somebody's going to test positive you got to try to do everything you can to minimize that spread this way if it takes out one person you have to quarantine that person it doesn't affect the entire team or a position group or whatever that's going to be if you know may madness is an interesting idea and certainly pushing things back certainly seems like a good idea but until we get the vaccine you know and and most people get it isn't it hard to just assume that things look better if you start on january 1st or february 1st well that's definitely the right point to make brady because there's no such thing as assuming anything when it comes to this whether you think if you have to start now to and you think that's the best idea of moving things back there's no such thing as the proper assumption or any kind of assumption that you are believing that you should have when it comes to this but i think you want to explore as many factors as possible to make sure that you don't have an interruption to your season what we saw in the nba when they went on hiatus or college basketball everything just stopped 
stone cold right when the conference tournaments that are either already happened or going to happen. So I think any idea is not a bad idea because more than ever before, there's no such thing as something not being on the table, especially when you have a lot of money that's still at stake, no matter if it's big time division one basketball or even mid-major basketball division two or division three. Freddie, NBA draft is coming up tonight. Uh, the NBA draft is always amazing to me. NFL, we get gems, sixth round, seventh round, undrafted free agents. In the NBA, it's like if you're not getting a guy in the lottery, I don't even know what to make of him. What do you make of the NBA draft dynamic? There's so many people that play basketball. Well, you know what it is because there are too many good players, and you have to make a, a judgment decision even in late first-round picks. You look at it in college basketball, how many guys have we seen that are playing big-time college basketball, and then a year later they're playing mid-major basketball and they still get drafted. When you have too many good players that are able to be spread out all over basketball, then it's going to be very, very easy to miss those hidden gems. I mean, look at Bam Adebayo. Many people yeah. did not believe he was going to be a terrific NBA player, and look where he is. He's a new-age big man. Many people thought the Miami Heat reached a taking Tyler Hero, look what he was able to do in the NBA playoffs. Many people looked at Donovan Mitchell and said, yeah, we think he's going to be terrific, but is he going to be really that good? He's one of the top guards in the NBA. So more than ever before, you can evaluate Brady as much talent as you want, but there's always going to be somebody out there that's going to be motivated and they go to the Vegas Summer League and then they wow, and the next thing you know, you got a Kendrick Nunn in your basketball team for the Miami Heat. And I hate to use that team as my point of reference, <laughs> but look what they've been able to do, Brady, that they continue to hit on people. They continue to hit on people that People say, what did you see in that guy? They're the same way the San Antonio Spurs used to be, getting a man with Ginobili, getting a Tony Parker, guys like that. We have so many good players that you have to go and reach and try to find them, not just in the United States, but in Europe and now Asia and now Africa. All of a sudden, those hidden gems are going to be there more than ever before, and a lot of those hidden gems may not be draftees. So that competition is really going to take on a cutthroat manner when you're trying to find the best players available, especially a new pace and space NBA. That makes the game better, but it makes it a lot harder to evaluate talent even inside the top 10 even inside the top five you know the celtics are really interesting to me i understand them trying to acquire drew holiday um as a supplement to kemba walker but i was really shocked to hear that they were trying to move off of kemba walker kemba they're the same age kemba's a better shooter he's a better free throw shooter he does everything except rebound essentially better than holiday why do you think the celtics want to move off kemba because of length. In the NBA, everybody gets longer, especially the point guard position where a Steph Curry, when you think about it, he's a little person compared to a lot of NBA point guards on the lines of 6'4", 6'5", or built like Russell Westbrook or a pointless basketball when it comes to the NBA. So I think that's probably why the Boston Celtics are trying to get ahead of the curve before the curve smacks them around because Drew Holiday is not that much bigger than Kemba, but he's a longer defender. It makes it very hard to get around him, especially the way that he can pressure the basketball and push the basketball when you're going to do that and get those open looks and get front hill front run runs and everything like that so that's why the boston celtics as much as they love kimball walker the nba keeps getting longer and longer well now small fours can be 610 and then you have centers that can be 72 and even shooting guards can be 66 to 68 i mean people forget how tall clay thompson is he's 67 playing a shooting guard 20 years ago even 10 years ago that was a small forward in the nba but when everybody can play small that doesn't mean you sacrifice length at those positions especially at the point guard position because in the golden age of point guards, you're not going to stop everybody, but at least you need a longer defender that can slow them down and make it very hard for them to find open people or to get past you and get those paint touches and really constrict your defense. Or do you think it has to do anything with Kemba's knee? He missed some time last year, All-Star break. He was out for a while after the All-Star game, then 
you know, he wasn't quite ready for the bubble, which surprised a lot of people. Are you worried about his knee? Because this news made me worry that his knee is worse than I thought. Well, it, it's a fair thing to put out there, but if you're Kimba Walker, and especially when you have a short and off season, so there's going to be that concern, how much rest is he going to need if that knee injury becomes more than debilitating than anybody could have anticipated. But it's all about making sure he's right for the playoffs. And if you're worried about that, if you're the Boston Celtics, if you know that, I guarantee you, Brady, everybody else knows that in the NBA. Believe me, there are better detectives in professional sports than actual detectives on the streets <laughs> trying to look at people what they're doing wrong. They have as much information as possible, and it's very high. To, it's very hard to hide that information if somebody is not up to par. So I clearly understand that Boston is thinking about doing that if that's going to be the case. But believe me, if they know that information, then plenty of other people know that information as well. Freddie, four and five. Here come the Patriots. I'll get you out of here on this. They're taking on the Texans. Look, it doesn't always look pretty, but I'm done trying to make it look pretty. So what do you think of the Pats right now? They can get to 500 this week with a win. Well, this is it. this is their identity, and that's something that was part and parcel before COVID-19 took Cam Newton and really disrupted that rhythm of the Patriots. We know their defense is not going to be like it was last year because of so many defections due to COVID-19 and injuries, but that identity was working early on. We're going to run the football. We're going to leave our defense off the field and not have them play a lot of snaps. We're going to make sure we get one-on-one coverage that Cam is going to be able to hit those throws, and he was able to do that better than anybody could have anticipated. So that's who they're going to be. That's who they have to be if they're going to have any success and Brady let's think about this they could be a fumble away from being a five and four team what that happened against the Buffalo Bills yeah. where they were surging the running game was working Cam Newton was making those kind of plays he doesn't fumble the football maybe they get that field goal to tie the game maybe they get that touchdown to win the game they're having a different conversation about the AFC East with Buffalo Miami and New England so if they stick to that identity and impose their will on people because they do have the offensive line that's not a pass blocking offensive line but they got a bunch of road grades that can move people out of the way if you can do that and maintain that identity and not let people take that away from you, then yeah, they can make a little bit of noise because it's Pittsburgh, Kansas City, and everybody else. But the Pages may not be that far from the Tennessees of the world or the Miamis of the world or the Buffalo Bills of the world, especially if their identity can really take hold and really bear fruit to help out their quarterback, but more importantly, help out their defense. You got me excited then. Pats can be back. In the, they're in the playoff conversation as it sits, Freddie. If they get to 5-5, five and five, they'll be there again. And uh, we're looking forward to that. Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio, with us every single Wednesday at this time. You can listen to Freddie's show coming up tonight, Freddie and Fitzsimmons, 9 p.m., a proud partner of, of ours. We're happy to have Freddie on our station and on my show. Freddie, we appreciate it. We look forward to uh, hearing you again next week. My pleasure, Brady, and try to stay warm as best you can, my friend. Yeah, you too. So there he goes, Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio. Uh, really is one of the best. Um, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of people in this business from a lot of different ranges, right, that work with teams or, you know, that are media members or fellow hosts or athletes or whatever. I've got a chance to meet a, a lot of people, and Freddie Coleman is right at the top of the list as one of the best. Um, you know, he doesn't need to come on this show. He wants to come on this show, and he's willing to come on this show, and he's willing to do it every single week. And I think that uh, it's important for me to be transparent with the listeners and tell them that. Like, Freddie doesn't get paid to come on this show. There are weekly um, appearances where guys get paid. Freddie doesn't get paid to come on this show. He just does it because he's that good a guy. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate before to do my show from ESPN a couple of times, and every time I go there to do a show, Freddie – is there and he's always willing to come on. He sits down with you and he talks with you and he genuinely cares about, you You know, we'll get on, you know, I'll get him on the phone, the commercial break and Hey Brady, how you doing? How's the show going? Everything going good. And 
He's just that kind of guy. So um, we're grateful to have him on our station for his show because his show is great from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. If you're listening to late night sports talk radio, Freddie is the guy. Like He is the gold standard in that. And then to get him on our show every single week at 545, that is a, uh, that's a big deal for us. And it's, it's a good, cool thing for you, the listeners, because Freddie brings it every time on a wide range of topics. So I've made my notes. The staff's cutting up Freddie's interview as we speak right now. We'll have our biggest takeaways. Freddie Coleman, biggest takeaways. That's coming up next here after this uh, update from CBS News right here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Before we get to the Freddie Coleman takeaways, I want to start with the NBA draft tonight. Um, You know, I wish that the NBA would just let players go straight to the league out of high school if they want. Or... I wish that they would mandate them to stay for three years. You know, I I wish they would do what baseball did. Okay, baseball lets kids go from high school to professional baseball. But if they go to college, they have to stay for three years. That's, That's what I want. And it's for a couple of different reasons. If a player is good enough, he should be allowed to go. And if a team is willing to take a chance on a player, they should be allowed to take that chance. Some people are ready at 18. Some people are ready at 22. Okay, if a player is good enough or thinks that he is good enough, he should be allowed to enter the professional ranks in the same way that regular people are allowed to enter the professional ranks after high school. Not regular, regular people don't have to go to college. If they're good enough at something, they can just get a job. Or if they just want to get a job, they can. Or if they just need to get money, they can. NBA players should be the same way. If they don't want to be in college or they're good enough where they don't need college, then don't make them go. It will help in a number of different ways. If a player can make money right now and get money at 18 and then subsequently reach their second contract earlier and their third contract earlier, if they can maximize their dollar ev- their dollar amounts in their career, they shouldn't have to delay that. If they don't want to be there, don't make them go there. Okay, look, this rule also hurts the college games. Rivalries aren't as strong. The fan attachment isn't as strong because there's so many players that you should love to love or that you should love to hate that are in and out after a cup of coffee on campus. You don't even form a bond with a player or with a team or with a program because you know, and, and because you know they're not there for the long term. What is it that makes UVM so great? Well, sure, the success, but the stories, the relationship, the community love. And why is that? Because the players at the low majors stay four years. And you develop that attachment. And you watch a guy grow. And you learn a guy's story. And you see them grow up. And you, in a weird fan way, feel connected to them. Why was J.J. Redick so hated in college? Because he was there for four years. Why was he so loved in college by Duke fans? Because he was there for four years. Duke fans love J.J. Redick more than they love Elton Brand. North Carolina fans hate J.J. Redick more than they hate Elton Brand. The rivalry is stronger. Same for Tyler Hansborough, same for Jimmer Fredette, and same for Tim Tebow. These guys that stay for four years 
or three years in some cases. But these guys that are there for a long time, the rivalries are strengthened. The game is strength. The game is better. You get more upperclassmen that are more developed. They get better as they go. The college game gets better. The fan attachment gets better. The rivalries get better. The atmosphere gets better. If they want to go to college, they should have to stay three years, develop, get better. Same in look, baseball does this. Football does this. This isn't me trying to hold down some basketball player. If a baseball player goes to college, they have to stay three years. If a football player, and all of them, you have to be three years removed from high school to get drafted as a football player. If you want to take a couple years off, you can, but you got to be three years removed from high school. So once you go to college, you're there for three years. There's an investment there. You're going to get stronger. You're going to get better. You're going to develop. And there's going to be a fan attachment. And the game is going to be better because it's being played by upperclassmen, by better players that have developed. College basketball is not getting that anymore. You get these great athletes who are not great players yet who leave early and then you have a, a handful of programs that are constantly in flux. They're not all doing this, right? Of course, but Kentucky, Duke, UNC, UCLA, Arizona, Texas, these big programs that should have huge fan bases and should be competing for Final Fours every year, they're constantly gutted every single year, and it's just different. The college game would get better if this rule existed. Let players go to the pros. Let them get drafted. Let them make money. Let the teams get the players they think are the best prospects right away. Let them get them right away. But if they go to college, let them stay for three years. It helps everybody. Helps the fans. Helps the game. It helps the player get better. Because when an 18-year-old gets drafted in the NBA, I went and looked at the mock draft today on ESPN. The top five is everybody's you know, 20 years old or less. They're there for maybe two years, maybe one. They're all like 19 point, you know, 19 years and three months, signaling they were there for a year. If you have these guys that get drafted in 19 and they're on, they're kind of ready, but they're kind of not, you're doing on-the-job training at the NBA level. You don't have to do that in any other sport. Baseball, you go pro, minor leagues, three, four, five years, hone your craft. Football, go to the go to college, three, four years, hone your craft, get better. You're ready to play instantly. And guys who play in college come in and play well right away because they're ready. In the NBA, they're not ready all the time. The rare one that is LeBron, Kevin Garnett, let them go, Kobe Bryant. But the ones that are kind of teetering, go to college, stay three years. That should be the rule. And by the way, the NBA draft is such an enigma to me. I mean, there's so many players in the nation that play basketball, right? Go to any court in America, any Y in America, there's people playing basketball. NBA draft is only two rounds long, but yet it feels some years like if you're if someone is picked outside of the top seven, we've not only never heard of them, it feels like they have zero chance. It's shocking to me. Football, undrafted, half the league is undrafted. All pro players are undrafted, and we find them everywhere. Division three players, Division two players, undrafted players. At the NBA, it's like if you aren't picked in the top eight some years, it feels like you're a bust, like you, you have zero chance at making it. And then other years, you see that you know all the top eight were busts, and then everybody later in the draft is what hit. The, the T- Toronto Raptors the, a couple years ago when they won 
the uh, the finals, they did so with no lottery picks. <laughs> Zero lottery picks. Kawhi Leonard was 15. Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam, Serge Ibaka, end of the first round. Marcus Gasol, Danny Green, I mean, end of the second round. Fred Van Vliet was undrafted. Like, the NBA draft is an enigma to me. You never know who's going to hit. I've seen top picks Michael Beasley, O.J. Mayo, uh, Anthony Bennett all flame out quickly. And then Isaiah Thomas is the last pick of the draft, and he's an all-star for a while. You just you just don't know in the NBA. Mainly of you t- concerned tonight, if you're concerned tonight, Anthony Lamb, UVM graduate, looking to become the first Catamount drafted. We'll certainly be monitoring that. All right, we'll get to our Freddie Coleman takeaways, which is where I want to go now. We do this every day after our big interview. I brought up the UVM story to Freddie Coleman, that UVM is going to delay or has delayed the start of their winter sports competition by a month. I asked him what the tenor was in Connecticut. What is he hearing? What is he seeing? Uh, pretty much the same thing because Sacred Heart did the same thing with hockey, and I wonder if they're going to do the same thing when it comes to basketball or other winter sports. And- so, quick soundbite, but he sees the same kind of uneasiness in Connecticut. And this continues to make me more nervous. If other states are doing things like UVM did, and and Connecticut did it with Sacred Heart. They didn't do it with all their schools, but they did it with Sacred Heart. If other schools or other states are doing this with their schools, you're just, you're very quickly approaching a snowball effect. And that's what we don't want as sports fans. UVM is going to be out a month. We've already seen Maine hockey and UMass have to cancel their series this weekend. Freddie's telling you Connecticut's a little on edge. Jeff Shulman told me that we got to get things better in Vermont for before UVM can play again. That's true. You also need things to be better everywhere else that UVM would play and where athletes would come in to play UVM from. Connecticut being one. Maine being one. New Hampshire being one. New York being one. Maryland being one. New Jersey being one. This is hard. And UVM is being conservative about this, and that's fine. But... If they're nervous about it here, and they're nervous in Connecticut, and they're nervous in some of these other places, you wonder if the whole thing is starting to teeter here. I mean, look, in the South with college football, in the West, in the Big Ten, money and television revenue, they're going to dictate that they try to play. And it's sad that these universities are held up entirely almost by unpaid athletes but that's a separate debate. That's why they're going to play. They're going to play because they have television contracts and they have hundreds of millions of dollars on the line, and the university is literally funded by college athletics, essentially. At some of these schools, the football coach makes more than the university president. That's how important college athletics is to those schools, is to those bigger schools. They're going to try to play. They have to. They have no choice. That's why they forced a college football season in when maybe it didn't belong. And you saw 15 games last week get canceled, and the machine just keeps moving because it has to. Doesn't have to here. If if UV if the America East didn't play, it would be bad for the athletes. It would be bad for the coaches. It would be bad for us. It would be sad for the communities. It doesn't completely fund the university. It helps. Okay, NCAA tournament revenue helps the university. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like it is at Ohio State. It's not like it is at USC. So if it's teetering here and it's teetering there, 
you wonder if the whole thing could come crashing down at any point. And, and I hope not. I certainly hope not because that would be uh, – it would be devastating to fans. Again, sports is not the most important thing in the world. It's not the most important thing at this time. But it is important to a lot of people, and it has a place in society. And a lot of people will be upset if there's no sports. And you just wonder if we're if we're on the, the tip of an iceberg here. I hope not. NBA draft tonight, as I said, uh, so surprising to hear the reports that the Celtics were looking to move Kemba Walker. And it looks like they're looking to move Kemba in some picks so they can get a top three draft pick. And what they want to do with that draft pick, we're not quite sure. They want to take a player at number three, or do they want to trade number three and something else for a what they think is a better fit or a better player? I'm surprised they're looking to move Kemba. Freddie Coleman, are you? Because of length. The, in the NBA, everybody gets longer, especially the point guard position where a Steph Curry, when you think about it, he's a little person compared to a lot of NBA point guards on the lines of 6'4", six, 6'5", six, or built like Russell Westbrook or a pointless basketball when it comes to the NBA. So I think that's probably why the Boston Celtics are trying to get ahead of the curve. So he's not surprised. He says it's all about length. And, you know, it's a good point about length at the point guard position. It's not one that I had talked about yesterday. It's not one that I was really thinking about until Freddie said it. You know, we, we talked yesterday a lot about did the Patriots try to get ahead of a curve, right? Everybody else in the NFL is is pass happy, so now the Patriots are going to go the other way. They're going to be run happy and take advantage of it. Well, may, Freddie's kind of saying the Celtics might be doing the same thing. We've developed positionless basketball, and if you're going to have positionless basketball where it's not dependent on height, you're still going to need some real length there because length allows you to guard multiple guys on the floor. And that's a trend we've seen now in the NBA. The Rockets played small ball and, and Golden State played small ball and Utah, Denver could play small ball. You've seen a lot of that, quote, positionless basketball. So you need more, quote, hybrid players. And the Drew Holidays of the world, who they reportedly tried to acquire, he's more of a hybrid player. He's 6'3", Kemba's six foot, longer arms, Therefore, he can defend a true point guard. He can defend a bigger point guard. He can defend a small uh, a shooting guard to some degree of success and maybe even a shooting guard that's bigger than him given his own personal height and length. If the Celtics are trying to get out in front of that trend in the NBA, then it's a little more believable. It's a little more understandable why they would try to trade Kemba Walker. But I caution you about this. As important as those three inches on – Drew Holiday might be over Kemba Walker or important as his arm length might be. Recognize also that the type of player, person, attitude, and leader are also important. I don't know a whole lot about Drew Holiday. I've never had to cover Drew Holiday. Other than his statistics and his highlights, I can't tell you what kind of makeup he is. So I'm not disparaging Drew Holiday at all. I can tell you, though, what Kemba Walker is. And Kemba Walker, we fell in love with him last year because he was the anti-Kyrie Irving. Kyrie was selfish, didn't didn't try to play through injury, didn't try to make teammates around him better, spoke in circles, wasn't transparent. In times he was trying to be transparent, and he didn't make any sense. People didn't like Kyrie Irving. They loved Kemba Walker because he was everything opposite of Kyrie Irving. He fit in Boston. Boston fans, New England fans like gritty, hard-nosed players. 
players who they like people who have gone through struggle, have gone through adversity, people who have a chip on their shoulder, but also people who will love you back. And Kemba is that. Kemba grew up in New York playing on on street courts, then went to UConn and brought, you know, an eight seed to win a national championship as an undersized guard, won a national title. People have always respected Kemba Walker. Then he goes to Charlotte and he's there for seven, eight years, gets to the playoffs like one time. People respect the work that he's put in. Great player, bad organization, never complained, never caused problems, never called out his organization, wanted to stay in Charlotte even comes to Boston, he brings with him that struggle, brings with him that adversity, brings with him that New York chip on his shoulder. That 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 I play on the park chip on his shoulder. That I played at UConn, we were an eight seed, we won a national title chip on his shoulder. The I have the smile and personality that's not Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving who's aloof, who doesn't get along with his teammates. Kemba was that. Kemba then went and played for Team USA in part solely so he could get to know his new Celtics teammates. Marcus Smart played on that team, and Jalen Brown played on that team, as I recall. And Jason Tatum was on that team, if I'm remembering correctly. He wanted to be a part of that so he could get to know those guys. Kyrie never went the extra step. Kemba always goes the extra step. So you might be able to tell me that Drew Holiday, because of positionless basketball, is a great fit in Boston. That's That's true. I believe Freddie Coleman when he says that. But also I caution you against just getting rid of high-character guys who fit in a city because you brought in a guy in Kyrie who didn't really fit and people wanted to like him, but he quickly pushed them away. Kemba embraced the city, embraced his teammates, took on even a, a backseat role. He's the senior veteran on the team. He's got a max contract, and he was willing to defer when needed to to 22-year-olds. That takes an egoless player to do that. Kemba was willing to do that. I caution you on just wanting to get rid of that guy. If he's not the best fit on the court, fine. He is the best fit off the court and in that locker room, and that matters too. It's understandable why Gordon Hayward right, like might be on the block. He's He signed on thinking he was going to be the star. He's now kind of the fourth option, sometimes even the fifth option. It just hasn't quite worked for him. I think he's a useful piece, but if he wants more, then I understand that. If he wants long-term money and he's not going to get into Boston, I understand that. It makes sense to have him on the block. It's made far less sense to have Kemba Walker on the block. All right, it is Wednesday on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Um on Wednesday at this time, we start to get ready for the Patriots game quickly uh, as they get ready for the Texans. Pats are four and five, looking to move to five and five. So let's get a quick look at the Texans with. It's time for Know Your Enemy. All right, Know Your Enemy. The These two teams, by the way, seem to play each other every single year. Okay, the Patriots have played the Texans. This will be the sixth consecutive year in the regular season, second straight time in Houston. Pats lost last year. By six, but it's not the same Houston team. Okay, DeAndre Hopkins isn't there. Carlos Hyde isn't there this year. Andre Johnson's retired a bunch of years ago, so it's not the same team that they that we usually see. What you need to know about this game is simply this: this game plays right into the Patriots' hands. The Patriots are the top; they're the third best rushing team in the league. The Texans are the worst rush defense in the NFL. That's all you need to know. 
The Patriots are the number three rushing team in the league. The Texans are the worst rush defense in the NFL. They're last in rush yards allowed. They're last in rush yards per play allowed. Even last week, when they're playing in a blizzard in Cleveland at times, you know, in 30 mile an hour winds, you know Cleveland's going to run the ball. Houston still couldn't stop them. When they know the run's coming, they couldn't stop them. Damian Harris should have a good game. Rex Burkhead should have a good game. Sony Michelle could be back. I don't know that he's going to play, but the running backs will have a field day for for New England. And if Houston wants to try, look, if Houston just plays like they normally do, the Patriots are just going to run all over them. If Houston tries to stop the run and tries to get cute and stack the box and all that, this is the game where Cam can maybe let some balls go downfield. This is the game where the Patriots' passing game has to get right. If Houston just plays it, whatever, then New England's just going to run, and that's going to be fine. They're going to get in and get out, and they're going to get a win. If Houston tries to take away the run, then this is where Cam gets right as a passer, and you start to see some shots, and somebody other than Jacoby Myers makes some plays because Houston also bad against the pass, 26th in the league there. Patriots are going to have some chances to go on the road, to get a win, to go back to 500, and be squarely in the playoff conversation. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We come back, daily dose of Doug. Flutie and I were in the lab last night. We talked for an hour and a half. What did we come out with? We'll bring it back to you next. Daily dose of Doug right here on WDEV. So Brady does a podcast with former Patriots quarterback Doug Flutie. Doug is a lot more famous than Brady. Flutie flushed, throws it down. Caught by Boston College. I don't believe it. Doug is a lot smarter than Brady. So much in football is the guys surrounding you. Your success is dependent on the guys on the field and that team. So let's listen to Doug. It's your daily dose of Doug on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Doug Flutie and I do a podcast together. Doug, who played a bunch of years in the NFL, played for the Patriots twice, actually, both in the 80s and in the 2000s, played for the Bears for a little while before New England the first time, played for the Bills, Chargers, and uh, truly one of the great athletes of his day. He and I do a podcast together, put out two episodes a week. We were in the lab again last night. We spoke for an hour and a half. He's pumped about the Patriots' 4-5 and five record, and so am I right now as uh, as it sits. They are on the fringe of that AFC playoff picture, and if they win and get to 5-5, five and five, then all bets are off. So we talked about the style of play that the Patriots are playing with. They're clearly a run-first team. Clearly that is their identity. And when I spoke to, to Doug about it, I asked him, I said, Doug, what do you think of it? Do you think it's sustainable? And he said, yes, but we need to know this. The margin of error becomes very slim. It's not going to be a blowout. It's not going to be a 40-10 to 10 game or 30-something win by three scores. In that game, and I, I said this, actually my wife even said this to me, shouldn't the Patriots be up by more? They're only up by set. You know, it's like they dominated three quarters of that game. They dominated it. And they should have been up, or it felt like they should be up by 17 or 20 points. But they're only up by one score. So we talked a little bit about this yesterday, and then I talked about it with Doug, and he echoed my sentiments. The Pats can win this way. Okay, turnover-free football largely, um, control time of possession, churn up a bunch of yards, long drives. You can win this way. You've seen it twice. They've beaten the Jets and they've beaten Baltimore. One's a bad team, one's a good team. They they have won. One was on the road, one was at home. They can win games this way, but your margin of error is slim. 
You can control a game and end up losing. Like You can have a 10-play drive that chews up seven minutes, that goes 74 yards, and end up with nothing. You can fumble. You can miss a kick. And if you do things like that, you're, you have a, a very high chance of losing. And that's the risk that you run, right? Like The formula can work, but you still do need to develop some downfield passing or have a pass game that's capable of generating big plays. And it might not be this year. Like This is who the Patriots are this year, and we all just have to deal with it. And I think they will win on Sunday, and they will get to 5-5. Five and five. And at that point, all bets are off. And as the weather gets colder and some of the other fast and flashy teams they play probably come back down to earth because the weather's worse, they're, they're going to have an opportunity to win games. And they might make the play. Look, look, look at what the Patriots have here. Patriots are going to play Arizona, and Arizona's good. But Arizona's going to be, I would have to imagine, slowed down by that point a bit. They're going to see the Chargers, who are have a great young quarterback, but Bill Belichick thrives on young quarterbacks. Young quarterbacks never beat Bill Belichick. They're going to see the Jets again, and the Jets are bad. We do think that's a win. They're going to see Miami. Miami's good. Another young quarterback. Bill Belichick thrives on young quarterbacks. If they can win, they can beat just the Jets, Houston, the Chargers, and two and the Dolphins. That right there gets them to eight wins. Eight wins alone puts you on the fringe of the conversation. Buffalo again, maybe. They've got to play the Rams, who are good, I would say, and that game's going to be on the road. So they're in that potential for eight to nine wins. Cleveland is ahead of them. Cleveland's going to see Baltimore again. Cleveland's going to see Pittsburgh again. They're going to drop a couple more games. Like Miami's got to play Buffalo again and them. I mean, there there are some tough schedules here for teams ahead of New England as well. They're in the mix. They can win games this year. But moving forward, you do need to develop. Again, you want that quick strike ability, and right now the Patriots just don't have it. For this year, for a one-off and a weird year, they can do it. But moving forward, you don't want this to be the version of the Patriots moving forward. Remember, as advantageous as it is right now for the Patriots to be a running team, the rules of the league are written as a way to help passing offenses. The rules of the league are there to help offenses. Okay, Receive, DBs can't do anything. Linebackers can't lower helmets. Quarterbacks can't get touched. If you... I mean, if you start throwing the ball down the field, you're going to get to take advantage of a lot of those rules, and you're going to get free yards and cheap points. And right now the Patriots don't get them because they don't do those things. Ultimately, you want them to develop that part of their game. This year they don't have it, and for this year it's fine because two weeks ago we thought they were going 2-14. and 14. Just to be in this position, this year we're happy. Next year you're going to have to move it forward a little bit. Um, Moving on, it was interesting. So I told... Flutie, my stat, right? Patriots are 4-0 and when they win the turnover battle. And that's part of the, quote, formula to win. Win the turnover battle. And he said that fans and the media are always throwing out that stat. Oh, they got to win the turnover battle. Oh, don't turn it over. He said, do you understand where that really comes from? You win the turnover battle. Being smart with the football, yes. But you win it by dominating the game, by controlling the line of scrimmage, by, you know, being smart with your decision-making. You when, when guys aren't being blocked and they're in your face, you know what? You're going to turn the ball over because you're getting hit as you throw. The ball goes up in the air and a guy picks it. When coverage is tight and you have to make a play because you're behind and you're trying to force it down the field, you turn it over. So it was interesting. You know, he's right. We in the media 
always say, oh, just win the turnover battle. If they don't turn it over, they'll win. And and it's one of the more, more – once he said that, it became to me one of the more cliche things that we in the media say or we as fans say. We think turnovers are a result of defensively really aggressive play or offensively really stupid play. Like that's what we as fans equate turnovers to. Well, if the defense got a pick, they were ultra-aggressive. If the offense threw a pick, they were probably pretty careless. That's generally how we think of it. It's generally just the product of good football being played. And it sounds so simplistic, but I think Doug is right that it is simplistic. If you win the line of scrimmage as a defensive player, okay, if, if the pass rush is there, if the blitz is there, the quarterback's going to be much more apt to turn it over. He's going to get sacked and fumble. He's going to... Um, get hit as he throws and it's going to be an interception. He's going to make a rushed throw and it's going to get picked. Winning the line of scrimmage helps you win the turnover battle as a defense. Offensively, if you can hold back that pass rush and you can keep the defense at bay, well, my quarterback's not going to get touched. I've got the ability as a quarterback to scan the field now. My receivers have a chance to get open. They can beat coverage. And now my odds of turning it over really aren't that great. Turnover battle is a lot simpler than we have have thought that it was. Uh, let's get to one more here. The stats tell me that the Patriots um, are getting blitzed an awful lot. Last two weeks, Cam Newton's been blitzed at two of the highest rates of his entire career. Why are the Patriots being blitzed so much? Here's Doug. We're going to pressure him. We're going to get in his face. We're going to hit a, get a hit on him and maybe sack him. And we have the extra guy up there, or two guys, whatever it might be, to stop the quarterback run in third and medium. So layman's terms, what that means is teams are blitzing the Patriots because they have no respect for their wide receivers. How is it correlated? Well, think about it. The Patriots, what they do best is run, and Cam also runs. So teams are blitzing more. If they can, let's just say, have seven guys coming. Seven guys are coming. Are coming. Well, seven guys they think can stop the run if it's a run. Seven guys think that they can maybe get to Cam and disrupt him and create a turnover. But if if they can't and Cam delivers a pass, they think, other teams think that, well, their wide receivers are so weak that they might get a catch, but we're just going to tackle them right away. And that was one of the more interesting things I've learned from Doug about how the blitz really works. You don't blitz when Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry are on the outside. You don't blitz when DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are there because if you bring seven and Russell Wilson throws it on a slant for a quick completion, DK Metcalf goes 70 yards. If Cam if Cam Newton completes it to Jacoby Myers first, you know, throws a seven-yard slant, he gets tackled at seven yards. That's what teams are thinking. That's how little they think of the Patriots' weapons. So you're going to see them continue to blitz because they're either going to stop the run, they're going to impact Cam as a passer, or it's going to be a completion, but nothing's going to come from it. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Uh, let's get real quick to crazy Twitter takes. The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. It's time for crazy Twitter takes on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! 
Yeah, interesting from John Tomasi of NBC Sports Boston, who wrote a column about the Boston Red Sox. And I'm going to get to a, a take I have on Haim Bloom coming up in my closing thoughts here. But um, he wrote a column, how Alex Verdugo can make Red Sox fans forget about Mookie Betts. And the reason why I think it's crazy is that, one, of course, no one's going to forget about Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts is going to the Hall of Fame, and he started his career in Boston. Red Sox fans will never forget that. As far as the trade goes, it's so unfair to put that on Verdugo. This is a huge... Now this trade that happened, there's a whole lot of ways that this trade can end up being good for the Red Sox. It can end up being good for the Red Sox if Verdugo himself is great which is more what he's talking about. If Jeter Downs is great, it can end up looking good for the Red Sox. But also remember, they, they saved $48 million by trading David Price. If that money savings turns into a good player or two good players or whatever, if that helps them resetting the luxury tax, then ultimately the trade can help people forget too. It's less about Verdugo and Downs being good is important because it's so visible. But you can peel back the onion and say, look, the money saved from not paying Mookie, the money saved from trading price, that all if it, that leads to good things, then the trade can be a little more excused as well. So uh, don't put it all on Verdugo because it's not all about him. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. What they're saying, Reed Cashman, Dartmouth men's hockey coach, I spoke to him earlier. He really really impressed me. I'll play you back a little bit of what he had to say about his new job in our listening area. That's coming up next. Thank you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? The passing game was atrocious today. This passing game is in big time trouble. They really said that? The Patriots, they're an average offense. If you cannot be explosive on offense, you cannot hang in the NFL. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. So uh, after the show is over, we'll have the full show podcast available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast page, right? I tell you to subscribe to it all the time. This week we're doing something special where I'm taking kind of a tour around the local college hockey scene. Earlier today I had a chance to speak with Reed Cashman, who is the new head coach at Dartmouth. And... Uh, previous coach at Dartmouth had been there for a really, really long time, and Reed Cashman used to work for the Washington Capitals, so had been there on their coaching staff for a couple of years and had been in the organization in the AHL for a little while too. He joined me, and I was so impressed by what he had to say. That full interview is available in that podcast channel. That's why I mention it. I asked him simply, why did you want to come to Dartmouth? Here's what he said. And then Dartmouth is – Man, this this place is unique, and it it has everything. We got this yeah. alumni base that is so excited about the program and supports it at such a high level. Uh, there's an administration that that wants to be great, and then you have the Upper Valley, and you have Thompson Arena, and you have this history of 114 years. So you put all those things on a piece of paper, and, and you just look at it. If you put that in front of on a piece of paper in front of any coach, take away Dartmouth, but just put away all the attributes. It's it's a no-brainer. It's an awesome job. And I'm generally a sucker for coach speak. When guys get hired, they always usually say the right things. Reed Cashman, I believed. And I think it would be incredibly easy to play for him. And I think 
and I'm, Todd Woodcroft, UVM men's coach, is in his first year too. He's I'm talking to him tomorrow, so you'll see that interview also in the podcast channel a little bit on the show as well. There is so much energy around the two Division One programs in our area, in our listening area, UVM and Dartmouth, that it makes me excited. And I'm more of a basketball fan than a hockey fan, and I am pumped for where these two programs are going. I generally loved what Reed Cashman had to say. Um, you can tell he's a young guy, so he's relatable to players. You know, he's I think he's probably a little less than 40. Relatable to players. He's a personable guy. He was easy to talk to. I think, therefore, easy to play for, easy to learn from. He has experience. He played in the AHL himself. He played at Quinnipiac, a program that has, you know, played for national championships. So he comes from a position that's easy to play for. He's easy to talk to. He has experience. He knows what it takes to get to the next level. And he know and he values Dartmouth. And I think that at the Ivy League and at Dartmouth, that's the most important thing, even. He's not just there to talk hockey. He's not just there to pad his own coaching resume and then move on. He's there. He love you can tell he loves Dartmouth. He loves New Hampshire. He loves this area. And that matters to fans, it matters to alumni, it matters to recruits, and it matters to the university and the community. He's all in. There are plenty of of guys and and gals who take jobs solely because it's a stepping stepping stone. They take jobs because it's a stepping stone. Reed Cashman, I can tell that that's not this. He wanted to be a head coach, yes, but he wanted to be a head coach at Dartmouth. He wanted to be a head coach in this area for that program, and he's invested. And as a fan of a program, or as a supporter of a program, as an alum of a program, that's really all that you can want. I, I was so un- I walked away from that interview thinking, you know what, Dartmouth hockey, I'm, I'll be watching him in a way I've never watched before because I believe what he's doing. And I'm sure I'll walk away feeling the same way tomorrow when Todd Woodcroft talks to me about UVM. There's so much energy in this region right now about college hockey in particular. It's already been there for college basketball. UVM's really good. New Hampshire has been good. Dartmouth, not as much, but New Hampshire has been good. The energy is back for college hockey. And for the Division One programs in our listening area, that's really, really cool. I also asked him, about recruiting because recruiting at Dartmouth is, I don't want to say it's difficult, but it is um, focused was his word that he used. We ha- we need guys who fit an academic profile. We can't go to a game and watch 25 players. We can go and watch one. We can go and watch two. So I said to him, I said, look, you have a focused recruiting strategy. What do you tell recruits? What What's the sales pitch in the living room? If I went in every living room and said, hey, I can get you to the NHL, it just isn't true. That's just not, that's just not realistic. Just look at the numbers. But what I do know are the habits that NHL players have. And I know from being in Hershey for two years, what a 20, 21, 22 year old has to do to get from American league to the NHL. So I can sit in the living room and say, here are the habits. I love that too, because it's honest. It's honest. And that's what kids want. Kids want you to be honest. He says, look, I can't promise you that you're going to get to the NHL. I can promise you that you'll walk out of here with a Dartmouth degree, and that will carry you a really long way in life. But I also can tell you hockey-wise, these are the habits that pro players use. I have been a pro player. I played in the AHL. 
I can tell you the biggest step between college hockey and the pros. Here's what you need to do. I coached in the NHL. He coached Alex Ovechkin. He knows what good hockey looks like at the next level. And he's not promising kids that they're going to be Alex Ovechkin. A lot, of, a lot of coaches are full of blank. He's not. And I got that impression. And if I were 18 and going through the recruiting process again, I, would, I know I'd walk away telling my parents, you know what, I like that guy. He shot it to me straight. He looked me in the eye. He was easy to talk to. He was relatable. And he's been where I want to go. But he also understands that hockey isn't the only thing in life. A lot of things to like about Reed Cashman. A lot of things to like about Dartmouth hockey moving forward. Again, tomorrow on the podcast feed, it's going to be Todd Woodcroft. And then Friday is Cam Ellsworth of Norwich as we get a look at the uh, Division Three program in town as we're your home for Norwich hockey. So looking forward to all of that kind of on my uh, my mini tour around the region's uh, hockey teams. We'll have to get Plattsburgh on as well. Stephen Moffat, great guy over there. I'll have to do, uh, get, talk to him as well. Closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. All right, closing thoughts. Chaim Bloom of the Red Sox getting... It's not ripped, but I would say it's criticized. And the reason why, and he's the chief baseball officer, the reason why is that Hyam Bloom is really smart. He's an Ivy League guy too. He's really smart. And the column, it was NBC Sports Boston. He's really good at talking without saying anything. And one breath he'll tell you, hey, we're, we're in on all free agents. On the other hand, he'll tell you we're looking to build the farm system. On one hand, yeah, we might spend big money. On the other hand, we might not. I think that's fair criticism. Hyam Bloom is good at speaking without saying anything. And as a fan, what I want is transparency. The truth hurts, right? If Hyam Bloom came out and said, the Boston Red Sox are not going to spend big money in free agency this year. That hurts. You're, you're disappointed as a fan, but at least I know what the plan is. The worst thing about being a fan is when you have no idea what the organization's direction is. You'd like them to convey that to you. It's not their job to, right? It's not their job to tell you what their plan is. But we want that. We want to know. Hey, we're looking to shed payroll. We're looking to get prospects. Truth hurts, but I'd respect it. Hey, we're looking to build for the future. It's more about the future than it is now. We're not going to go after George Springer or Trevor Bauer, but we are looking to make some low-risk acquisitions that can help us this year and subsequently maybe in the future also. And I come from this I come to this conclusion based on Jerry Depoto. Jerry Depoto was the general manager of the Seattle Mariners, and a couple years ago, the Mariners were within a couple games of the playoffs, and they had an aging roster with good players, Robinson Cano, Nelson Cruz, Gene Segura, had a good roster, almost made the playoffs. He stripped it down the year after and said, look, we're not rebuilding, we're reimagining this roster. We're looking to get younger. We're looking to get more athletic. We're looking to get more team control. We're looking to get cheaper in the short term so that we can spend big again in the in the long term. When our when our young players we acquire are ready to win, we will supplement them. And Jerry Depoto hosts a podcast, and as far as I know, he's the only front office executive who who has his own podcast. And he talks at length and at will about the Mariners' plan. And 
you don't have to love it that they've been bad for the last couple of years. You do have to respect that he's honest with you. He told you this was going to happen. He's updated you on every step of the way. His podcast is incredibly informative. He tells you about the players they've acquired and what they see in them and why they've acquired them. And at least as a fan, you can remain invested because you know what the organization has done. You don't have to love it, but at least you know where they're going. And I'd like to know where the Red Sox are going. Earlier in the year with the Patriots, were they trying to win or were they trying to tank? We didn't know. And it was frustrating not to. Wait, what's the plan here? It was frustrating. Red Sox are on that wavelength now too. Are they a big player or are they looking to shed payroll? Are they looking to compete right away or is High and Bloom playing the long game? We're not getting those answers. I understand why fans want them. I want them. What's the direction of the organization? Are we looking at top-end starters? Are we looking at to get four? Do we want one Trevor Bauer or four uh, journeyman starters? Do we want just any? I just want to know. I just want to know. Breaking news, UVM Athletics has put men and women's basketball activities on pause for two weeks because of a positive coronavirus test in each program. That just came out from UVM Athletics. We will uh, have more on that tomorrow. Maybe that has to do with the edict that came down this week from UVM to say that we are not starting until December 18th. It wouldn't, based on what I'm seeing right now, it wouldn't account for why hockey can't play this week, but would account for basketball. We'll do a little more digging on that tomorrow, and we will uh, have more for you tomorrow. Celtics in the NBA draft tonight. Will Gordon Hayward be a Celtic by the end of the night? Will Kemba Walker be a Celtic by the end of the night? We'll get all those answers here in just a matter of a couple of hours here as we get ready for the NBA draft. Thanks to Freddie Coleman for joining me. Full show podcast is available. I'm back at it tomorrow. An update from CBS News and then Dinner Jazz with John Wilson. Freddie Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com.